Hello, my beautiful birds, and welcome to today's episode. So this episode is all about why it is so important to constantly be challenging yourself and be up against some sort of a challenge, okay? I'm not sure what the title of this episode is going to be yet, hence me not saying it, but obviously by the time you're listening to it, there is a title. Um, Quick little life update before I get into the brain facts. The brain fact, by the way, someone actually put this on the Facebook group the other day and I thought... Perfect. Love that so much. And I still have the list of people um, of people's requested brain facts, but I thought this was an interesting one to cover and it's called aphantasia. So good time. Stay tuned for that. Um, okay, little life update. The life update is that the merch, the merchandise has gone live. Um, I've already had so many orders flooding in. It's been absolutely amazing. If you are yet to check out the merch, it is on the website www.dyfmpod.com. Um, go there and check out the merchandise. It is so exciting. Honestly, things have been the, – the, the white sweater has been so popular. Um, also, the um, short answer, no, long answer, fuck no T-shirt has been flying off the shelf. So thank you so much for your support. Can I just say the support has been incredible. People are already receiving their orders and it's so nice to see you guys upload the photos on Instagram and tagging um, our Instagram handle in it or on the Facebook group as well. If you're not part of the Facebook group, please join. It's a good time there. Um, so it's just do you fucking mind with Alexis Fernandez. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the life update. It's been Fucking great. So uh, let's get straight into the episode of today. We're going to start with the brain fact. If you are not interested in the brain fact, feel free to fast forward to roughly, I think, the 12 minute or so mark. So the brain fact of today is aphantasia. Now, this is a condition that affects between 2% to 5% of the population, uh, which is actually quite a bit. When I think about it, and statistically speaking, that would mean that a few like thousand of you guys listening here, if not, uh, you know, a high number would likely have aphantasia going by these statistics. So I'm going to get you to do something. I'm going to get you to close your eyes right now while you're listening to this. And I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you're sitting on a bench in a park and there's no one next to you on that bench. It's just you. And you look up and in front of you, there's, it's quite a rich park, okay? There's a lot going on. There's all these plants that are quite short and there's really, really tall trees. And then you look past those trees and there's skyscrapers behind that park. Now, in this imagination, I want you to ask yourself, were there animals? Were there birds, pets? Were people walking past? Were there people on roller skates? What was going on? How many people were around you? Was it just busy with plants and trees, but there was no one else around you but yourself? And now open your eyes and realize that there are some people that actually would not have been able to picture anything that I just mentioned. Okay, so that is aphantasia. It's the inability to visualize or very limited ability to visualize. And this is also referred as image-free thinking or some people refer to it as blind imagination. So it's just an inability to picture something in your mind's eye. So if you can't see something in your mind's eye, how does that affect you in your day-to-day life? They did a bunch of studies 
on people with aphantasia and a control group of people that did not have aphantasia. And this and one particular study was where they got the participants in both the groups to draw images based on photos that they had shown them. So photos of rooms, like I think it was like three different rooms. And then the participants would then draw an image or an image of each photo that they had seen. What they found was that in the aphantasia group, there was substantially less detail in those pictures versus the control group. Or really interestingly, the aphantasia group sometimes would use words instead of images to describe what they recalled. So even though, though they were saying, we've shown you a photo of this kitchen, for example. Um, now you've got to close your eyes, imagine this kitchen, or you don't even have to close them, but imagine this kitchen in your mind's eye and recreate it via drawing. And there were some people in that control group that instead of drawing these images, they were writing down everything that they had seen. So, you know, table, knives, sink, etc. And this shows that they have a different way, people with aphantasia have a different way of remembering things. That is a different kind of representation other than visual representation. So in this case, with these participants, they were seeing verbal representation. It can affect, if you have aphantasia, it can affect certain aspects of your memory because a lot of the time visual visualization and imagery is used to aid in our memory. So it can really affect autobiographical memories. So these life memories of events in your life, because we rely quite heavily on visual imagery from our past. So these memories, while of course you can still recount these certain major things in your life happening, they might not be as rich in detail or context if you can't visualize the imagery around it. And because you don't have the imagery around it, that memory might not be as strong in your mind versus someone who can add all these other components to it. Because the richer a memory is, that is with detail or with um, emotion, the easier it is going to be to recall and kind of keep that memory in your long-term memory. Another interesting thing is that this is not always, in some cases, yes, but it's not always across all senses. So they can, you know, someone with aphantasia can imagine a tune or a song, but not the imagery or the visual images that go with it or smells and things like that. And they might also experience visual imagery in their dreams. So you'll hear of a lot of people that have aphantasia, but also have visual dreams. But Remember that it's very different to try and imagine something at will. So think, okay, right now I've got to picture something in my mind now. So you're at will trying to visually recall something versus spontaneous imagery when you're sleeping. They're two completely different processes of the brain. Another thing that people with aphantasia have reported is that they are imagining concepts more so than this idea of an image. So one person in particular in an interview that I was watching on YouTube describes it as a cloud of words that are bunched together to represent where things are. So they know of a word and, and attached to that word is another word, attached to that word is another word. So if you ask this person to imagine or describe what their bathroom vanity looks like, they would be able to tell me aspects of it, what is on there, like a list of things. But they're not doing this through visualization, whereas someone without aphantasia could literally think instantly you could think my bathroom vanity you know where things are kept you know if they're going to be in the drawers if they're sitting on the vanity how many things are do you have your hand soap what does that hand soap look like you've got all of that in your visual imagination whereas someone with aphantasia is simply um, going back to these concepts and these word clouds so that's one of the common ways that they will recall something 
This was discovered in the 1880s by Sir Francis Galton and he discovered it because he was asking people to visualise things like a breakfast table and he realised that there was a bunch of people that just were not able to visualise their breakfast table at all. And in most cases, this occurs from birth, but most people don't even discover that they have this until they're teens, early to late teens, that's a common time for people to realize that they have aphantasia. And the and the reason for this is that it's not until they hear other people explain visualization in a way that they that it actually pings something and they're like, wait a minute. I've never thought a lot of people that have aphantasia, they say that they've always heard people talk about visualization, but they never made the link of like visual to visualization and imagine to image. So they thought here I here I am using my imagination, but not with visual images. So a lot of people will live into their teens, sometimes later, and think, whoa, whoa, what do you mean you see an actual image? What are you talking about? You know, so it's 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 often as a child, you know, you, you you're working with what you've got and you don't really notice the deficit, especially because when you talk to other children, they're not describing things in such rich detail versus how maybe someone would in adulthood. So it might not be noticeable until they're a lot older. And it normally, okay, scientists don't know what causes it, why it happens, but we know that it is often through birth, it's something in the genes that's causing this. And it can also be caused through uh, trauma or a brain injury. And when I say trauma, that could be physical trauma or it may be emotional trauma as well, may cause something like this. They find that in people with aphantasia, your visual activity is normal when you're seeing things in front of them. So when you wire someone up or when you're putting someone through an fMRI and watching the activity of the brain, when they're getting someone to actually look at an image, the visual activity is normal within the brain regions as anybody else. But they found that when they asked the participant to imagine something, whereas normally the visual areas in your brain would light up when you imagine something because it's all linked to imagery, they're finding that other areas of the brain are lighting up instead. And one area in particular is the semantic retrieval part lit up. And this is because often they're using words to imagine a face, for example, or words to imagine the room instead of images. Um, it also can affect the mem- your memory in the sense of using imagery to help jog your memory. So if you look at me, for example, when I go for a walk or a drive or I'm going somewhere new, I semi-consciously but very subconsciously I use imagery to help create landmarks in my mind and create like a map of where I've been. So a building, a certain tree, I, you know, when I turn a corner, I like kind of, you know, cement the image of what that corner looked like when I turn. And I don't do this that actively, but I know that when I'm returning and I'm trying to find my way back, that's when I'm pulling out all these images of this map that I've laid out in my mind. And I've always done that to get places. So you can imagine that someone who doesn't have this visual representation is going to either use a completely different way of finding their way back, or they might have difficulty in finding their way back due to the fact that they can't use visual imagery. So that is the brain fact of of today. There's currently no way, no known way of treating it as it stands. But of course, there's always going to be, you know, more research and studies done as to also the cause because we're really in the dark. Science is really in the dark about what exactly causes it as well. Hopefully you found that interesting. Okay, so the episode 
topic of the day is all about why it's so important to challenge yourself constantly. I'm going to be talking about discomfort, um, two different kinds of discomfort and why you need to get very clear on why those things are. And once you've gotten clear on these things, I think you're going to feel very empowered to make some changes in your life, to make some changes on the things that you've been banging on about for years I can guarantee you every single one of us, including myself and everyone listening, has maybe one, if not way more than one thing that you've been talking about changing or doing or starting or stopping for the last few years and nothing's happened. I'm going to talk about the why behind that hasn't changed how you can view it differently, what you can do about it. I'm going to talk about the physical benefits of challenging yourself constantly, the physiological benefits, the neurological benefits, why it's so good for the brain. I'm also going to talk about why it's why adaptation is why it's so important to always be working on your adaptation because your body is actually really good at adapting to things when you give it a chance. So often, you don't even give your body a fucking chance to adapt. You think, oh, no, 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 that's not for me. No, that's not for me. Don't talk to me about ice baths. Could never. I could never. Don't talk to me about having a cold shower. I could never. Don't talk to me about X, Y, Z, okay, whatever it may be, because it's just not you. You just can't. You can't. Well, you, you don't know really because you haven't given your, your, your body the opportunity to adapt and we adapt at a pretty miraculous rate when given the environment to do so, okay? Um, and then within the episode, I'm going to be breaking down kind of what happens when, when you don't challenge yourself or, well, I mean, yeah, I'll go into that. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the idea that challenges – or discomfort, however you want to look at it, can come in all kinds of ways, okay? And the reason we resist something that's difficult or challenging is because it represents some kind of pain or suffering, okay? Some kind of discomfort, something that's uncomfortable, so you avoid it, right? Our default is always to avoid immediate And the emphasis on this, what I'm going to say, is immediate discomfort. Everything you do in your life by default is to avoid immediate discomfort. Don't really want to go for that run. I'm going to postpone it. Don't really want to do that thing. I'm going to procrastinate. This is way more fun what I could do right now versus that thing. going to do that thing that's more fun. Like we are wired to just have a good time, which I love that so much for all of us involved, but it can actually hinder us if we're not kind of, you know, swooping in with our logical mind and and helping ourselves out in this situation. Because if you don't swoop in and help yourself out, then you kind of get stuck behind and you're doing that, you know, recurring New Year's resolution where you're sick of your own fucking voice, you know, wanting to resolve the same fucking shit that you've wanted to resolve for the last five, 10 years. I'm here to tell you in this episode that whether you like it or not, challenges and discomfort is going to be a part of your life. So my challenge to you is to choose voluntary discomfort where you're going to gain something in the process versus kind of involuntary discomfort. They're both kind of voluntary, but one is where you're really choosing how it's going to pan out and the other one where you're kind of just a victim to your situation, okay? So we're going to go for voluntary discomfort. That's the aim by the end of this episode. Now, I was in Brisbane on the weekend with my sister. And my sister, if you guys have heard the episode with Stephanie, it's one of the very early episodes. It's called What It Takes with Stephanie, my sister. 
She's unbelievable. If you hear her talk, she's one of the admins on the Facebook group as well. She contributes to a lot of the posts. But she, I learn a lot from my sister. She's an absolute gun. I've spoken about her before on the podcast. She's a firefighter. She used to be an elite athlete. She, the way she trains, the way she, you know, structures her day and her life and her outlook, it's very, very, very impressive and you can learn a lot from it, okay? So my sister and I were up in Brisbane and my sister was trying to challenge my mum to do this thing called 75 hard and it's this like really, you know, quite an intense challenge where it's for 75 days, you have to stick to a diet, whatever diet it is that you choose. I'm kind of, I'm probably going to fucking bastardize this whole thing. I'm not remembering it clearly, but you got to stick to some sort of diet. You have to do two 45 minute workouts a day. They don't necessarily have to be intense, but you've got to be working out. It could be a walk, but it's got to be two a day. One of them has to be outdoors, no matter what. Um, no alcohol. And I'm sure there's more, but they're the main ones. So my sister's trying to challenge my mum to do it. And my mum's like, no, nah, but I've got this holiday coming up. She's like, right, well, we're going to do a 45-day version of this. And, you know, the, the one thing that I'm going to get you to do is just the the two 45-minute workouts, even if you don't do, don't do the other things. And my mum's like, yeah, but why? Why do I have to do something? And Stephanie's like, because you've got to challenge yourself. You have to challenge, challenge, challenge. She kept going on about the importance of challenging yourself. And my mum was like, well, why do I have to make my life, you know, unenjoyable. If I don't enjoy it, why do I have to do it? Why do I have to be challenging myself? Why can't it be enjoyable? And when she said that, at first I'm like, oh, just fucking do it. But then it made me realize that it's not just her who thinks that. I think most people feel that way and rightly so because we are conditioned to avoid that kind of discomfort and putting and actively putting putting ourselves through something that's not comfortable, especially if we don't like it. If you don't love exercising, the prospect of two 45-minute workouts a day is like, fuck that, right? So when she was saying that, I was like, there's so many people. She's, you know, she's part of a majority of people that feel that way. You know, it's not just just because Stephanie's not like that. It doesn't mean that Stephanie's the standard. Okay. So I wanted to talk to most people who feel the way that my mum feels about challenging things. Like, why does it have to be that way? Why do I have to make myself suffer, quote unquote, if you want to look at it that way, in order to, you know, gain something? Why? Let's talk about why. Number one, there are two kinds of discomfort. If you're going to take anything away from this episode, it is this. There's two kinds of discomfort. There's effortless discomfort and effortful. Okay. The effortless discomfort is one where the action or the inaction is not hard to do, but the results are really unpleasant. Examples of this are procrastinating. The action or the inaction of procrastinating, easy to do, the results are unpleasant. You then are on a deadline, you're stressed, then you've got more work than you would have had had you done it earlier. Vaping or smoking, feels really good to vape. We love it. We know it's not good for us. The repercussions of that, it's more difficult to climb a flight of stairs. It fucks your skin, long-term, the long-term, you know, repercussions of it. Um, doom scrolling on your phone, really fun while you're doing it, entertaining, it's pacifying you, blah, 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 blah. Afterwards, you're like, oh, my dopamine's depleted, or you do, maybe you don't say that, but you're like, oh, I feel flat. Oh, I feel, oh, my willingness to do things has just diminished, and I've wasted time. Um eating all the sugar that's in front of you and then feeling really depleted with energy because you had your sugar spike and then your sugar drop. These things are really easy to do. So they're effortless discomfort in the sense that when you're doing this thing, it's 
easy to do. It's almost enjoyable. In in many cases, it is enjoyable, but the results after it are what's causing you the discomfort, okay? So the repercussions of your actions or your inactions. And the end result is going to cause you, you know, it it will affect your health, your productivity, your relationships, your mental health, your self-love, or all of the above combined. Then we have effortful discomfort. This is the opposite. The action of that thing is uncomfortable, but the results are pleasant. The results are rewarding, fruitful, healthy. They enhance your growth. They enhance your mental health, your overall happiness, your relationships, etc. These are things like challenging yourself to move your body outside of the home for 45 minutes a day, uh, waking up early, setting a routine, restricting your time on your phone, uh, not procrastinating by, you know, having time blocking things, you know, putting things in place that at the time are not that – a nice bath, you know, shit like that, going for a fucking ocean dip once a week, whatever it is. Things that in that moment it's like, oh, I really have to push myself to do this. I really have to get out of my comfort zone and make myself uncomfortable. But the results, phenomenal. So they're the opposite. So basically what I'm trying to say to you is that you're going to feel uncomfortable no matter fucking what. So choose your discomfort. Is it going to be effortful discomfort where I have to push myself into an uncomfortable place and then reap the rewards? Or am I going to cruise and then feel uncomfortable because of the repercussions of me having just cruised and done something that was pleasant in the moment or easy or I didn't take any action? But the result at the end of the day is the same. At the end of the day, you would have experienced discomfort. When you look in the mirror, do you feel healthy? Do you feel full of energy? I'm not talking about being shredded and whatever. I mean, hey, that might be your goal and congratulations. But when you look in your eyes in the mirror, do you think, wow, I challenged myself today. I fucking did it and I'm here. I've proven something to myself and I feel good. Or do you feel yet again, yet again, I didn't follow through with what I said I was going to do. It was easy. It was fucking easy. But now I'm pissed off. I'm annoyed. I have the physical, emotional, mental repercussions. But also I'm looking at myself being like, just fucking why can't you? Why? Here I am again annoyed about the things that I've always been annoyed about. Why can't it just change permanently? And the reason why it can't change permanently is because you are still, you, us, people in general, are conditioned to avoid discomfort. But what you have to realize is that, that that suffering, that pain or discomfort, however you want to call it, will occur. Is it going to be effortless discomfort or is it going to be effortful discomfort? You cannot escape it. It cannot be avoided. You can't escape it. Pick your poison, okay? So for me, Every time I set out to do something, every time I set out to do something that's challenging, I think people think, oh, my God, you must love it. Look, sometimes I love running. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes my legs feel like lead. Sometimes I'm too cold. Sometimes et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing I know for fucking sure is that I feel good after. That's, that is a non-negotiable. That is a locked-in thing. I know how it's going to feel after. So while I might not love the process every single time, and I don't, I absolutely don't love it every single time. I know I love how I feel after. The same takeaway physical exercise, I just say that because that's something I do all the time, but the same goes for when I set X amount of time to, you know, read up on neuroscience articles. If I do that every day or often, I feel really good. Sometimes I'm like, fuck it, I just want to watch TV. But I think, yeah, but you don't feel great after watching TV being like, oh, 
so glad I did that. You feel great while you're doing it. But if I just spend 30 minutes reading an article, I'll walk away being like, that was good. That was good. I've like, I've, um, you know, I'm learning, I'm this, I'm that, I'm gaining, I feel good. And now I can watch a bit of TV if you've got time left over. Do you know what I mean? That's the difference. So I want you to ask yourself a couple of things. Number one, identify the area in your life, in your life, I sound like a bogan just then, in your life, in your life that you want to change. And I'm talking about the outcome. We're talking about just outcomes, okay? Is it is it my relationship with myself that feels like a constant battle every single day? I'm just not my best friend. Is it how I feel in my body? Do I feel healthy? You know, do I feel full of energy in the morning? Is it my mundane relationship that I'm in that I'm no longer excited about, but I also really don't want to leave and none of neither of us are working on it and it's just depressing, really? Is it how I feel every morning when I eventually get out of bed because I just can't break the cycle of checking my phone every time I wake up and snoozing my alarm? Is it my constant anxiety around exams and essays because I just never study and then when it comes to the exam, I'm having a mental breakdown? Is it you know, my knee that needs rehabbing and it's just getting worse and worse and worse and I'm not actually doing the exercises to fix my knee. What is the thing that you want changed? Or it could be something like it's that skill that I've always said I wanted to do but I've just never set the time to doing it but that's the thing that I want to do. That's what I want changed. I want to gain that skill. Number two, ask yourself what is causing this unpleasant result? What in my inactions or effortless action is causing it? Okay, is it my behavioral addictions, as in like addicted to being on your phone or gambling? Is it your procrastinating? Are you always hell bent on avoiding discomfort at any turn, at any corner? Is it the excuses that you make? Can you look at your excuses and crack them open and be like, am I just making excuses? Is this legitimate? Because I'm that you might have real legitimate reasons for not doing something, and that is okay. But always challenge yourself, always ask yourself, wait a minute. Is this a legit reason or is this just an excuse because I don't want to feel uncomfortable by me being the one making the change? Ask yourself that because it's okay for you to say, no, I've really cracked it open, Alexis. I've done the homework. This is a legitimate reason. Fine, fine. Then you're at peace. Good. But if it's not, challenge yourself and say, this is actually an excuse. I have the ability to do something about it. And the only reason that something hasn't been done is because I haven't done it. It's not saying it's easy. But the reason it hasn't been done is because I haven't actioned it. Number three, ask yourself, can this thing that I'm not happy about, this, you know, outcome that I want changed, can it be fixed spontaneously? Or is it this chronic thing that's going on and on and the only way it can be fixed is if I do something about it? So, for example, if you do nothing about it, will anything change or will it continue to get worse? Okay, like I said about that recurring New Year's resolution that you have every single year that you're so sick of hearing your own voice saying it out loud because it just doesn't happen. So looking at, you know, what you just answered for one and two, can it be fixed spontaneously? And you just have to wait it out because in most cases, the answer is no, it cannot be fixed spontaneously. It requires your input. It requires you intervening. There's some sort of an intervention from you for that outcome to change. Okay, so get clear on that because if it's something that's spontaneous that you just have to wait it out, you're probably not complaining about that thing either. You're probably thinking this is I just got to ride this wave out. Okay, now and then number four, ask yourself what can I trade 
this discomfort for? It has to be a trade. It's not going to disappear on its own. It's got to be a trade, okay? And the catch is that it's going to be uncomfortable. Surprise, surprise, it's going to be uncomfortable. When you're looking at something that you don't like in your life, the relationship you have with yourself or the fact that you're always on your phone or you're a serial procrastinator, if you want that to be changed, you don't just eliminate that thing from your life. That doesn't happen because even the process of eliminating that is uncomfortable. Okay, so what you have to realize is that when you want to eliminate something that causes you pain or suffering in your life, like procrastinating, all the things that I mentioned, you have to trade it out for another thing that is uncomfortable. It's impossible to have it any other way. It doesn't just vanish because it requires your intervention. And that intervention is effort. And for most people, that effort is uncomfortable because it's new. It's something that's out of your comfort zone. It's something you don't like. You're, you know, resisting doing something that you wish you could do, et cetera, et cetera. So what will I trade this discomfort for? Something else that's going to be uncomfortable. But the beauty of it is you are now in power. You're no longer a hostage to your situation. You get to choose what uncomfortable thing you're going to do. Okay? You can't get rid of this thing that's causing you suffering and then just replace it with this really easy, effortless thing over here. If that's the case, if you could do that, you would have already done it. You're not an idiot. All you guys listening to me right now are not fucking morons. The reason you haven't done it so far is because you understand that it requires effort and it's also going to be uncomfortable, hence why you avoid it. Okay? That's why you haven't done it. The alternative isn't pleasant. And at the moment, what most people are doing, you're just sticking to the devil you know, okay? It's like, pick your poison, I'm picking the one I know, all right? Effortless discomfort versus effortful discomfort. What's it going to be? Ask yourself, what is it going to be? Is it going to be effortless discomfort? And I just keep doing what I'm doing. Or effortful discomfort where the ball is now in my court, the power is now in my hands, I feel empowered, I'm still going to find it uncomfortable, but I'm choosing this discomfort and the results are good and I like the results. So you're just flipping it around. I do this and I don't like the results or I do this difficult thing and I love the results. Your pick. You fucking choose. Up to you. And if you choose the first option, congratulations, you've made a decision. At least you feel empowered. But if you choose the second option, watch your life change in front of you. Okay? I want to talk about, before I wrap up what I'm saying, I want to talk about the benefits that you get from challenging yourself. You're going to benefit, obviously, with adaptation. So when you challenge yourself, let's talk about physically or, for example, in an ice bath. My sister and I went and did these ice baths in Brisbane and we did the first, we were in for three minutes, fucking freezing. And the first one, we we went in for four lots of three minutes while like bouncing around saunas and hot spas and whatever. And the first one, we were talking about how cold it was to each other. We're like, oh my God, this is so cold. This is so cold. And I was shivering uncontrollably. Okay. Then the second time we got in, we were just talking a bit more casual. We decided, we didn't even actively do this, but we stopped talking about how cold it was and we were talking less and focusing on the breath. I barely shivered on the second time. By the third and fourth time, All I did was focus on my breath. We didn't talk. We just focused on the breath in and out. And it was so much more bearable, number one. And number two, I didn't shiver at all. Not saying that it wasn't cold. It was fucking cold. Didn't shiver though. And I noticed already I was a lot calmer. 
because I was already adapting. Your body adapts at an insane rate when you just be and you just allow it to adapt, okay? You're not rushing it. I didn't have an outcome and a desired outcome. I was just trying again and trying again. I just watched how my body adapted just in these few sessions in the ice bath. The same thing goes when you are studying, when you're learning something, when you're working on your flexibility, when you're working on your memory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, training anything that you're doing. You are way more adaptable than you realize. And when you, ad- when you become adaptable, what's happening in your brain from a neurological perspective? Activity is happening in the brain and you're getting what's called synaptogenesis, which is the creation of new synapses. When you're learning something, when you're you know, trying to do something until that action becomes subconscious, your brain regions, your brain is just working harder to create new pathways so that skill stops being something really difficult and becomes something that becomes relatively easy, like riding a bike, for example. So you're getting all this new connectivity between your brain regions. Your brain is like, and when you do that, you're getting more oxygen, more blood supply to the brain. When you're trying new tasks, especially physical, you're getting new oxygen or, or fresh, I should say, oxygen blood supply to your brain. Incredibly healthy for your brain to be putting yourself under these kinds of challenges, this kind of discomfort where you are actively choosing to step out of your comfort zone and do something difficult. And then because of that, you're releasing all these feel-good neurotransmitters. If it's exercise, ice baths, all of that, you're releasing a lot of endorphins. That's a natural painkiller. Your threshold for pain, not just physically, but emotionally is going to go up. You're releasing serotonin, which is kind of, I like to call it like the gratitude neurochemical. It's like, it makes you feel really good in the moment, makes you feel, you know, happy for what you've got and happy for what's happening right now. You're releasing dopamine, which makes you more willing to do something. It makes you more driven. And, you know, that's, you know, that's the, yes, it's the addiction drug, but when you harness it for the right purpose, it really helps you be more willing to do something. Okay. And then of course, from a psychological standpoint, you start proving things to yourself and your relationship with yourself improves massively, massively. Because when you prove something to yourself, you think, wow, I'm really proud of myself. I actually just did that thing. Who cares at the quality of the work? You did it, okay? Can it be improved? Yeah, probably. Is it my best work? Who knows? But I did it. I fucking did it. You know, who cares if I had to stop along the way or if I had to take pauses or if I had to regress and try again? doesn't matter. I said I was going to do it and I fucking did it. And now I feel really good. Now I'm going to you know, I've started the day, I've had my morning, I can look myself in the mirror and say, you fucking did it. Or you gave it a red hot go and it maybe didn't work out the way it worked out, but it's better than lying in bed. I actually did it. Your relationship with yourself will begin to change when you start to prove things to yourself and when you start to prove that you are capable of doing more than you gave yourself credit for last week, last month, last year. Okay. So from a psychological standpoint, as far as your relationship with yourself, from a physiological, neurological standpoint, you're making great changes. Everything is going to change for you. Watch your life change when you decide which kind of discomfort you want to be involved in, effortless or effortful, okay? You are the only one that can make the decision. You can sit here and say, why does it have to be so difficult? Why do things have to be so uncomfortable? But when you do that, it's your resistance to being uncomfortable to what is holding you back without realizing that your actions right now are already causing you discomfort. You're already causing yourself to be uncomfortable. So why not just shift the kind of discomfort that you're going to feel and at least reap the benefits instead of suffer indefinitely? 
Guys, thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope that that gave you some food for thought and I hope that you can use these tools to make some changes in your life because you've got it in you. It's just a matter of summoning this energy and moving forth. Guys, love you so much. We have the listener story um, before we finish the episode. Okay, the listener question of the day. Hi, Alexis. I absolutely love the podcast. I've been listening for over a year now, implementing your advice, and I've noticed a huge difference in mental in my mental health and personal growth. I'm so happy to hear that. I need your advice on a family situation. My parents got divorced when I was in high school, but were separated for a few years before that. My mum has pretty serious MS and it takes a huge toll on her health. The divorce was extremely messy and it left me with a lot of trauma and unresolved emotions. Anyway, it's been about eight years since they first got separated and my mum's health isn't doing great. I've had minimal contact with her during these years and her emails have slowly stopped. My dad was never supportive of a relationship with her because of what she did and when I was younger I simply listened to my dad. Now I'm older and I'm feeling lost and conflicted. I'm feeling this pressure to make some decisions about what I want to do because of her poor health and I don't want to look back when I'm older and regret not trying to have a relationship with her. But there's a lot of unresolved emotions that I've struggled to process even years later. How do I figure out what's best for me and decide if I should start a relationship with her? If I do, how do I navigate this in a healthy way after not speaking to her for years? I feel like a completely new person. Any words would be greatly appreciated. Okay, this is a great, great question to ask. I feel like there's a lot of people who might not be in your exact situation but have a similar kind of conflict, emotional conflict in their mind. The first number one thing that I would say to you is to make sure that you're not doing anything to please your father, number one, okay? You're an adult now. When parents go through divorce, I understand that parents are doing the best that they can do and your father would have been hurt maybe for a good reason or for not. I don't know the reason. I don't know the details. But you said in your letter, my father was never supportive of a relationship with her because of what she did. This may be because he knew that it would be very unhealthy for you guys to have a relationship or it could be because he was very hurt And didn't want you having a relationship with her because she hurt him so much. So I don't know what the reason is, but all I'm saying is make sure that when you take action on this, if you do, that it's not because you don't want to hurt your father's feelings, okay? You have to understand that you are your own person and you are entitled to a relationship with both your parents if you want it. You are also entitled to draw boundaries there and not have a relationship if it's unhealthy for you to do so, okay? But it is your decision and you are the one with the control and with the power and it should not be any other way, especially now that you are an adult. That is your call. So the first thing to do is really break this whole thing apart and say, are my actions right now or inactions being influenced by not wanting to hurt my father or because my father's just told me to do things? Yes, no, maybe just have a look at that and see where your mind is at. Another question you should ask yourself after figuring that out is, is the only reason I want a relationship with my mum because I want to avoid feeling guilty in the future? And is that a good enough reason? Again, like I said, I've got no insight into your story and I don't need to, but based on what you've said, it sounded really messy. I don't know who did what to whom, but it may be the case that your mother did something that was so 
unhealthy and so damaging and maybe with no remorse for you that you've looked back and thought, I absolutely cannot have this unhealthy person in my life. Like this person has literally been so awful to me and I can't have them in my life. I think a lot of people feel like they're your mother, they're your father, that's it, you have to, you don't have to, okay? I'm here to tell you that if someone has been extremely hurtful or mean or abusive or manipulative or all of the above or a combination of some, you don't have to have a relationship with somebody. You don't owe your parents a relationship just because they birthed you, okay? You, you own your life. So you have to determine is the only reason, because I don't want to regret something in the future, is this relationship even salvageable or am I just trying to create some sort of a connection purely because I think that I'm going to regret it later? because she's suffering, because she's unwell, et cetera, et cetera. In my opinion, if someone has been awful to you, if, if, I'm not saying she was, I don't know, if someone has been awful to you, manipulative, abusive, um, neglectful, didn't care, didn't ever factor you in as, you know, you being the child, then personally, I also would really struggle to have a relationship with that person. It's not to say that I would be mean to them or that I would absolutely cut them off, but I would struggle to have a relationship, of a quality relationship, you know? So if that's how you're feeling, that might be the case where you just can't do it. The next thing to ask yourself is, is it possible for our relationship to be better than what it was? If I reach out, do I think that we can actually rekindle parts of our relationship? Do I feel like there's potential here? And does the thought of potentially rekindling something with my mother make me feel optimistic and make me feel good? Because if the answer is yes, then I think it's worth exploring. Because I think that, you know, with the right circumstances, you can give people a second chance if, if you feel comfortable and if they are receptive and if they are showing remorse or that they want to rekindle something. I think that's possible if both people are in the right place, you know, and if you are feeling like, oh, it would be nice, it really would, that's a good enough reason to kind of lean into that and reach out. But you might be feeling like this is so fucked, there's no way in hell that we can rekindle anything. The only reason, the only reason I want to reach out is purely because I don't want to feel guilty. Then is that a good enough reason? And you can still reach out and and kind of quote unquote be there for your mother if you don't want to feel guilty in the sense of reaching out and saying, I know we don't have a relationship, but I also don't want to have bad blood between us, that kind of thing, versus you actively trying to build a nice relationship with her. Do you know what I mean? There's a difference between saying, I harbor no hate. And while we don't have a strong relationship, I want you to know that I don't hate you versus I really want to try and build something fresh with you. I really want to try and rekindle our relationship. Okay. And lastly, my advice, if, because you asked at the end, if I do, so answer all those questions and you're going to have a, a better idea of where you stand. If you do, how do you navigate this in a healthy way after not speaking to her for years? I would actually write a letter, a handwritten letter, in my opinion, is one of the best ways to reach out to somebody where the relationship is a bit cracked or where you haven't had communication for years. I feel it's very heartfelt. It's a lot more personal than over a text or an email. I feel 
that you're able to express yourself in a really real way. It's your handwriting and you're able to put pen to paper. I think a letter is a lot better as the first step to reaching out to somebody than speaking in person because a lot of the time we're we're loaded with all these emotions and when you meet up in person, you forget to say the things that you wanted to say or you react in a way that you wish you hadn't reacted because you've got potentially all this built up, pent up, emotions within you. Whereas with a letter, you write the whole thing out, you can reread it, change it, you really pour your heart and soul into this thing and it's measured and you're saying what you want to say. You give yourself the time to say what you want to say. So that would be the best way. And I would write a letter saying how you feel, why you feel that the relationship has gone sour, why you feel that you haven't had much communication or why you've shut her out, give the reasons, and then why you want to reach out. Okay, and then you put the ball in her court, but you explain where you st- where where you're coming from, and then you say, "This is where I'm coming from. This is where I'm at, and this is where I'd like it to go." She could then turn around and say, "No, I'm not interested," and that's perfectly fine because you've done what you needed to do. Okay, and it's okay for her to turn around and say no because you you still will have the clear conscience that you reached out when you wanted to reach out. Or she could turn around and say, absolutely, I'd love that. And then you can draw boundaries with how that plays out as far as how communication will begin. You might just say, I actually just want to write to each other for the first few interactions before we meet in person. You could do these slow steps to start feeling more and more comfortable before you, you know, hang out for lunch or something. Thank you so much for writing in. That is the listener story for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And as always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.